Welcome Thrivers. Today we have William Breitbart. He is the Chair of Psychiatry at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He is my research and psychotherapy mentor and he's a very cool person that I really enjoy talking with. The purpose of our conversation today, I just wanted to hear his life story but it became something really cool. We, we really st started talking about responsibility for our own life and how creating our, a life for ourselves is our own responsibility. He goes into his life story, and, and, and which is a, a very interesting one. His parents survived the Holocaust, ended up in New York, brought him up, and he tells us that whole story. And, and he also tells us about the drive of him to become an expert in psychiatry, in medicine and oncology, well, psycho-oncology specifically, and understanding the suffering of people that experience cancer. Definitely worth listening. Enjoy. And this is a podcast that you've been doing? Yes, this is a podcast that I have every Sunday. I started it on the pandemic because I like talking and I was stuck in my house, not, not being able to talk that much. And I thought that specifically in psychiatry, we, we, we bring a lot of people from so suffering to coping and maybe a select uh, <laughs> population. Sometimes they're able to go from coping to thriving and I... I thought it would be a good idea to have to talk with a lot of people that I consider are thriving and enjoying their lives and have meaning in their lives and then maybe have people been able to listen to it and to understand okay. that that thought process and what what leads them to become who they are and you, yeah and you're thriving mm -hmm. exactly and I think you're a great candidate for that specific topic in my opinion I've heard your story so many times. So for, for everybody listening, this is Dr. Breitbart. He's the chair of psychiatry at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And he has a beautiful story that brought him to where he is right now. And I've heard it probably 8,000 times, but, but I really like it. <laughs> and I think, it, I just wonder if, if you want to tell us a little bit about like what led you to be a psychiatrist and what led you to specifically focus on cancer and psychiatry. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Christian. I thank you. I first need to ask you, uh, why, how did it turn out that you've heard this story 8,000 times? Is it that, is it that I tell it so much? Or? I, well, I, I guess I'm exaggerating, but I, I think that you mention it every once in a while when somebody new comes to psychiatry or when somebody asks you, um, what, which happens a lot. I feel like a lot of people are very curious about your life. Probably because I think it comes from the authenticity. And, and, and inevitably, when you're like in the moment telling what you feel in a sort of unusual way compared to the typical psychiatrist that you would talk to, 
the immediate question is like, who is this guy, right? Like, and then that comes up and then you're, you're ready to answer that. Right. Well, you know, um, we've been interviewing uh, new fellows, right? For, uh, for this coming, for next July. Yeah. And uh, I like to interview the fellows uh, because uh, I feel like, uh, A, I want to see who the fellows are. I want to I be able to be a part of, I want to be informed about how we select the fellows. But also I think that um, uh, I can have a, a, a conversation with a fellow applicant that will be um, unique and completely different from any other interview that they will have with in any other program, with any other chair of a department or a training program director, because I'm not gonna ask them the same questions like, uh, so tell me what, uh, what, what made you interested in psychiatry or how did you get interested in consultation liaison psychiatry or tell me about an interesting case. Um, I, I actually get into a conversation with them about uh, a number of things that no one else is ever going to really ask them. And, um, and, I, and in the process of this conversation, I almost always tell them my story, the story of how I got to uh, become who I am and do the work that I do. Uh, and uh, I try to explain them to them that uh, the work that you do, you know, being a, a psycho-oncologist, for instance, or a, a, psych, a CL psychiatrist, whatever, the work you do should be a reflection of who you are as a person. So uh, basically, um, I end up telling my story because uh, I am very, uh, I, I ask them who they are and who do they want to become? And, uh, you know, what, what they're, what, you know, not only who they are, but what is their intention in the world? You know, what is their, you know, why are they here in this world to do? What, what is it that they intend to do with their lives? How do they intend to uh, create a life of significance and have an impact on the world? And I make a presumption, actually, that most people uh, actually eventually agree with. But I make a presumption that uh, almost everyone who finds their way into uh, the field of healthcare, uh, you know, cancer-related care, uh, psych psychiatric, psychological aspects of dealing with cancer and things like that, I make an assumption that everyone is interested in suffering. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and then I, I you know, uh, I, I'll also ask them a little bit about what they, uh, how they understand suffering, et cetera. And it's very interesting. A lot of people don't understand uh, what suffering is. They, they may know it deep inside, but it's hard for them to express it. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit too, you know. But um, so it, uh, I end up telling them my story because people have trouble. Uh, I, I, I do a lot of teaching over the course of, uh, of my career. Uh, I love to teach, and that, and that has to do with 
my intention, the intention I have with my, you know, in terms of what the impact of my life should be. Uh, and I'll tell the story so it'll be clear. Uh, but uh, um, I like to teach. And uh, I use the Socratic method. And um, uh, there's a, an, an attending on our faculty who we both know, uh, uh, Dr. Kearney, who's a pediatric psychologist, who was a, was, was a fellow about 10, 15, 20 years ago now. And uh, she would come on rounds with me and I would use the Socratic method. And I would basically ask the fellows questions until, to the point in which they really didn't know the answer. And then I would keep, I, you know, and I, and I, I basically, um, uh, I, I, I think that even when you don't know the specific answer to a question, if you're, um, if you're someone who belongs at Sloan Kettering as a fellow or an attending, you should be ideally someone who, even if they don't know the answer, can somehow figure out the answer uh, or, or approximate, you know, get close to what the answer might be based on the things that they do know, you know? So um, I, I really don't like it when people just give up and say, I don't know the answer, you know, please, you know, tell please me. Please tell me. Yeah, try, I, I encourage them to try to figure it out, you know? Well, you know this, and you know this, and you know this, and all those three things contribute to the answer to this. What do you think? You know, uh, but uh, I actually made a few people cry. You know, by pressing them, and uh, Julia Kearney took me aside when she was a fellow, and she said, "Bill, this is not helping. Make making them cry doesn't help them." When you see that they really don't know the answer, have pity on them and give them the answer. So I, I, I sort of stopped doing that. You know, I, uh, I, I still use the Socratic method, and I, 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 to the point where people are a little uneasy. But I, I don't go so far as to, as to make them cry. I tell them the answers ahead of time. So I'm really focused on. Yeah, go ahead. Uh yeah, what you just said makes me makes me think of responsibility to the world a little bit. I get, I guess I realized I never got the opportunity to round with you, and I don't, I definitely don't like crying in rounds. So in some ways, I'm I'm grateful that didn't happen, and then in other ways, I'm I'm kind of like I I want it to happen at some point to see how far we go into that Socratic method. But what you were saying it makes me think of my responsibility for my life and, and, and how much as human beings we take responsibility for our lives and our outcomes in our lives and, and our, even like the seeking of our personal happiness. If we give up and wanted to, to get that happiness, like somebody else to give it to us, we are kind of like doomed to failure in some way. Yeah. Well, you know, um, Responsibility is a very interesting thing, right? Uh, on some level, uh, it's uh, it's an existential obligation, right? Uh, Kierkegaard taught us a few hundred years ago. Uh, he he hypothesized that human beings were unique amongst all forms of life. Uh, and he may have been, and, uh, amongst all animals, he may have been wrong. There might be a few uh, 
animal species that actually have this ability as well as human beings, but we certainly have this unique ability, rather unique ability. Um, Kierkegaard thought that human beings were unique in the fact that they were able to, that they were able to be aware of their existence, that they could uh, objectively contemplate themselves. Uh, and that in fact, at some moment in life, at some point in life, you become aware, oh my God, I, uh, and you may not say my God, but you say, oh my, I, I, I'm here. Now what? What do I do with this fact that I exist? Another way of asking the question is, what is my ability to respond to the fact that I exist, that I'm alive? Therefore, the word, the existential term responsibility. What is my ability to respond to that exist? Your, your existential obligation is to create a life. All right? You need to create a life. And you need to create a, a very specific kind of life. You need to create the life of a homo sapien, a human being. Can't create the life of a dog. You can't create the life of a whatever. You can only create the life of a human being, the, the, the animal that we are. Human is the animal that we are. Being is this uh, this uh, this suggestion, this belief that perhaps we are unique compared to other animals in the sense that we are beings. We have an essence that is unique to us. And that essence may be composed of uh, what people might describe as uh, what is unique about human, human beings, our ability to experience certain kinds of experiences like spiritual experiences or mystical experiences or the experience of awe, you know. Um, you can be sitting. You can be sitting at the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking out at the grandeur of the Grand Canyon and grandeur of nature, and you can you can be overwhelmed by the beauty of nature and the expanse of of the of the Grand Canyon and feel the particles of your body connecting with all the particles of the of, of nature and the universe, and you can you can feel infinite and and endless and uh, and and forever you know um uh but that rat that's set, that's sitting next to you looking at the grand canyon cannot have that experience so it's that being the essence part of our ability to experience awe uh so you need to create uh, a life of who you are now Kierkegaard also said that once you become aware of your life that you exist uh you have two overwhelming emotions the emotion of dread and the emotion of awe. The emotion of dread is basically this idea that, oh my God, I exist, but I'm mortal, I'm finite. And I, I die at some point. And in fact, I could die at any moment. It could happen at any moment. I really can't even predict it uh, at this point. Um, it could happen at any moment. It could happen during this interview, Christian. It could happen right now. Right now, yeah. And so uh, that that that's a very important fact, <laughs> and it's related to this. It's related to uh, you know, and it's and then the other experience is awe. 
the experience of the beauty of life, what it feels like to fall in love, what it feels like to love a parent or a child, what it feels like to love God, to be in love with nature, beauty, art, music, film, food, um, to experience joy, right? Uh, to experience the joy of something painful even, like your own death or, or the birth of a child, you know? Um, so awe is, is, this, is this wonderful thing. The, you know, it's, uh, it's basically what Albert Hoffman experienced when he uh, was experimenting as a young scientist in Switzerland in what became Bayer Laboratories, was trying to uh, isolate ergot alkaloids from fungus on rice seeds. He accidentally, or he, what he isolated was lysergic acid and he accidentally ingested it. And then he went home and suddenly he had this experience of awe the grandeur, every blade of grass was so like distinct and beautiful and the smells of everything. And he just experienced life in an, he experienced ecstasy. He left his, he became bigger than his body. Mm -hmm. He was no longer defined by the limitations of his physical body. That's all. <laughs> and that's how we feel when we, we experience ecstasy, not the drug ecstasy, but the ecstasy of falling in love. It doesn't matter. Uh, so when you create a life, you have to create a human life, which has contains in it both awe and dread. So you have to create a life in which you develop an attitude and a relationship towards both the awesomeness of life, the beauty, the joys, the pleasures of life, and the fact that we die and we're finite. So you have to develop an attitude of connection and relationship to that as you create your life. Most of us don't pay attention to the dread part. We try to deny it. And that's because it's full of fear, right? Mm -hmm. Dread, angst, it's all fear. And we were having a discussion with some people the other day, and I was making the point about dread, you know, and fear. Yeah, I remember. Our bodies, evolutionarily, you know, we have systems within our bodies. The automatic, our, our brain is automatically sent, set to res respond in fear to threats. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the one thing that is very well developed and it has existed in our brains for hundreds of thousands of years, if not longer, right? And uh, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the most primitive, basic apparatus within our brain, right? The most, most basic function of our brain, which is to, to make us run from being extinguished, make us run from something that threatens our existence, death, right? Uh, so we don't have to go very far and we don't have to seek out things that are frightening because life brings us all sorts of frightening things and the seeds of our death are, we're born with them, right? You know, we're born with them. The, 
the, in our genes are the seeds of what's going to age us, what's going to give us the diseases we're going to get. You know, it's, it's, it's built into our, our finite, our obsolescence is built in. We're like, we're like Apple computers. We weren't, we weren't built to last forever. Uh, there, there, there was, there was uh, evolutionarily, I suppose, uh, we were supposed to make room for the next version of uh, Homo sapiens, and, you know, mm -hmm. like like lemmings. You know, at some point when there are too many of us, we have to we have to walk off cliffs or something like that. But uh, you know, so we're built in to do that. Um, but awe you have to seek out. Awe you have to you have to look to fall in love with somebody. You know, you have to have the courage to, to create a life to 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 appreciate the awe of the experience of, of um, falling in love with somebody, right? Or to create something of beauty, to create a life of, of meaning and intention and significance. You need courage to do that. You need to in, uh, uh, assert some intention and action, right? Mm -hmm. so, so our obligation is to create a life, a life that's unique to us, Right, uh, which is a big challenge, because uh, not only you know when when we talk about life and talking about creating a life, we're talking about creating a life that we're given. Right, we don't create ourselves. We're we're given this life. Uh, the other day. A year, a few years ago, I was looking in the mirror, as I often do, uh, and I was saying to myself, what is the one thing I know absolute, for absolute certainty? You know, the, more, the older you get, the more you know, the more you learn, the more I think, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> you really don't know. You only know. A, a, you know the smallest little bit of, of what you of what there is to know in the world right you know how ignorant you are so i said what do i really know for certain and i said to myself the only thing i really know for certain and i didn't always know this because i had the, uh the fantasy like a lot of people that i was adopted because i looked at my parents and i go i can't possibly they can't possibly be my parents i'm nothing like them i mean these fools how did they raise me i mean <laughs> You know, I, and my brother definitely was adopted. You know, <laughs> I had this adopted. But I said to myself, and, and now I, I have this Jewish genetic disease that both my parents had. So I know that they were my parents, you know. Uh, I know for certain. And I said to myself, the only thing I know for certain is that I am the son of Rose and Moish Breitbart. That's all I know for certain. Mm. Everything else. I'm not 100% sure of, <laughs> but that I know for sure. And what that really reflects is the fact that uh, we have a connection to the past, present, and the future. We are part of a continuum of human beings, right? With our ancestors. Uh, uh, it's a continuum from our ancestors through us to the future. There's a Doobie Brothers song called uh, I'm Here to Love You. And there's one line that says, uh, 
I think that passing love along is what we were born to do. So we're really creatures that are here to pass along maybe love, maybe knowledge, wisdom, our genes, right? All these kinds of things. There are researchers at, at uh, Sloan Kettering Institute who think that the dominant life form on earth is DNA. And the only purpose of human beings is to carry DNA from one generation to the next. We're, we're just basically, um, you know, delivery uh, people, you know, we're, we're, we're like a post office, you know, we just deliver the DNA to the future. Um, so basically, when you're trying, when, when, when you're asking somebody, you know, who are you, you're asking them, you know, so who, you're, you're, you're creating a life, who are you trying to become in the world? And obviously, that has a lot to do with the, what you were given by your family, by your ancestors. And, you know, you, what you were given, you had no choice about, right? Mm -hmm. I had no choice who my parents were going to be. I know you did, but I, I, <laughs> but, but I didn't have a choice who my parents were going to be. I didn't have a choice of, you know, the genetics that I was going to be given. I didn't have a choice of what epoch what era of time of the of the of the earth i was going to be born into if i was born in the 1800s 1800s or 17 late 1700s uh, 1800s in poland where my family was originally you know i would have been a rabbi probably instead mm -hmm. of a, a psychiatrist uh you know we didn't choose that i didn't choose to be born into a uh, a family, uh, you know, an Eastern European Jewish family uh, on the Lower East Side. I could have been born in a favela in Rio de Janeiro. Mm -hmm. I could have been, and, you know, I could have been born in India and raised to think that God is a blue elephant. I could, uh, the, uh, uh, right? The, yeah. It was, uh, non, none of that was under my control. So there was all this that I was given. And uh, in, uh, in meaning sentence psychotherapy, we call it, we talk it the leg we, we call it the legacy that you're given. So you're given this legacy. You're given the genetics. You're given the the culture. You're given the values. You're given one parent, two parents, grandparents, no grandparents. You're given um, the socioeconomic kinds of uh, structure, where, where the culture, the country, whatever. And then you have to decide when you create your own life. What am I going to preserve? What values will I preserve and make them central to my life? Or how am I going to, how is the life that I'm going to create, how is that going to be unique, right? Separate from, from theirs, different from theirs, but perhaps inspired by them in some way, mm -hmm. uh, or perhaps uh, rejecting them in some way right mm -hmm. so uh so I, I ask people you know who are you who are you trying to become and they have a very difficult time doing that and who we become uh is composed of our attitudes towards the world towards life towards death you know towards uh towards everything right towards ourselves our our conscious aware self our values, our intention, what is our intention in the world? Um, you know, what, what, 
what impact do we want to have in the world? What significance do we have in the world? Uh, significance is an interesting idea, you know, and it boils down to everyone, every human being needs to feel that there was some sign that they were here in the world. Somebody saw them. And even if it's only your aware, conscious self that observes you constantly, even that, if that's your only witness to life, that at least there's been one witness. But you know, so there's some sign, some significance. The word significance starts with, with the word sign, right? Some sign that it was here. So they have a hard time uh, describing who they are. And... Um, and who they want to become. They're very good. They're very, people are very good at saying what I want to do. Uh, and so that's where uh, we start to talk about things like their families, their, their values, their attitudes for the world, uh, and what their intention with their lives is. And some people might call it the purpose, but I like the word intent. What do you intend to do with your life? Or what, do you t what do you intend to do with the who that you are? And I sometimes describe, you know, I, you know, they have a difficult time. So I said, so I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm a person who uh, is, who is love, loving. I'm love, and my intention is to ease suffering in the world. And I do that through the work that I do. So the story that you heard me tell 8,000 times is the story of how did I become interested in being someone who impacts, impacts suffering in the world. And that's the story that I usually tell. And you know, it's, yeah, go ahead, Christian. Yeah, it's like, I'm thinking about what you're saying right now from, from Kierkegaard to the expression, to our ability to respond to life as a self-aware human being having dread and having awe and being born in a specific time, geographic location to a specific biological family and how to use that, that we have to create ourselves, maximizing the amount of awe in our life, which is, in my opinion, maybe as a, a, awe is, is almost a synonym of love. Uh, for our self-experience and maybe also we could extend it to the experience of others and then I, in an ideal world then it becomes like the life we want to create is one to maximize our awe and the awe of others and that's correct and I know yesterday you you actually I saw you nodding and smiling when I made an analogy about a tree I think mm -hmm. do you remember that I was saying that trees you know, and other plants, you know, there's, there's there, there are roots, they don't move, right? We have legs and feet, you know, and all that kind of stuff. We can move around. Uh, so uh, a, a tree is forced to get all of its awe, all of its nutrition uh, passively. If the sun comes out, it gets sunshine. If the sun doesn't come out, if it's cloudy, it doesn't get sunshine. If it rains, it gets the water it needs, you know? Uh, so it's passive. And that's a little bit like what I, when I talk about dread and fear, we don't have to move around very much. It comes, life brings it to us all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. Phone calls, uh, emails, <laughs> it comes over, over the internet. It, it, 
you know, it comes through the air, aerosolizes virus. It's, it, it'll, it'll find us, right? Uh, but awe, you have to go searching for. Meaning, you have to go searching for. It wasn't a coincidence that Viktor Frankl called his book Man's Search for Meaning. You have to go searching for meaning. You have to take particular actions. You have to, um, you have, to have particular intentions. You have to... Now, there are a lot of people who live very meaningful lives accidentally and unintentionally. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but if you are aware of what some of the sources of meaning are, you know, love, connection, creativity, the attitudes that you take towards life, the, the, the historical context of life, then you can purposely go and create meaning in your life. You can create it and experience it and re-experience it. And you can seek out awe. You can seek out love. You can seek out pleasure. You can seek out uh, adventures. You, you can take a trip to Quiakil. You can do all sorts of things. Or you can, uh, you know, take a, a, a psychedelic and have a mystical experience. That, that's awesome, right? Uh, or go to the Grand Canyon, even better yet. Cheaper <laughs> or, or less dangerous. But, um, so, uh, so that was an interesting thing. So, um, so what I often tell people is the story of like, you know, uh, of, of, of how I got, how my background, how my, my roots, <laughs> how my ancestors, how my family, how the experience of my family uh, and my uh, influence, who I became in the world and how I, I use that experience of my family and, and, and the environment and the, the parents I was raised by the, the environment I grew up in, um, the time in history that I was born into, and all that, how that influenced, how I used that to help me create who I am. And so I'll tell, I'll tell the story <laughs> for your listeners, right? So um, my parents were, were both uh, Holocaust survivors from Eastern Europe, from a small town of Poland. And when the war broke out, my mother was 14 years old and my father was 17. My mother at age 14, uh, the war broke out, my mother and her parents were hidden in a hole under the stove of a Catholic woman who sheltered them, who hid them uh, in this hole under her stove in her barn. And she hid them for several years. My father was uh, sort of taken into the Russian army involuntarily as it came through town. And he happened to be at the end of a very long line. And he just quickly and slyly slipped into the forest. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, left the line, ran away. And he connected with a group of about 100, 150 partisans, partisan fighters. There were 100, 150 people. Uh, some of them were middle-aged, some were older. There were families with young children. There were young, a lot of young people anywhere from, you know, his age to the mid 20s, 30s. Uh, they were armed. They, uh, they occasionally had to use those weapons to survive, to uh, mainly fight off Ukrainians and, and, and Germans. Um, and, uh, you know, unlike those of us who are, uh, who had to go through <coughs> stay at home uh, <coughs> uh, orders from New York State, you know, we did, they didn't have, uh, in, in the forest, they didn't have uh, 
uh, Netflix or cell phones or internet or delivery from Whole Foods or anything like that. They, you know, so my father would have to go uh, look for food he, and he would go uh, search for food. They would send out a little delegation of three or four guys with weapons to get food. And they came across this barn. They would look, and there were chickens in this barn. My father and I've, I, I don't eat chicken um, like anyone else. I have a very different appreciation for chickens than most other people. My father was looking for chickens, and instead he found my mother. <laughs> he broke into that barn. They broke into the barn looking for food, looking for chickens. And uh, what would happen at night is my, my, my grandparents and my mother would come out from under that hole and that stove in that hole, and they would actually fry the potato peels that were left by uh, the, uh, this woman from the potatoes that she, and my father broke into this with this young man, he broke into the, the barn and uh, he found my mother and my grandparents. My father happened to be related to my grandmother they were second cousins, so they and they knew each other from the same town. And my grandfather said to them, "You can't stay here; it's not safe. You have to come with us in the woods." My grandparents were too frightened, but they let my mother go. They told my mother, "You should go," because they thought she'd be safer in the woods with my with my father. Wow! So at this tender age of fourteen and seventeen, my mother and father running around the woods together in the forest for about three years. And, uh, you know, I remember when, you know, basically the forest floor was their bed, <laughs> the stars, the moon, the sky, night sky was their blanket. I once asked my mother, I said, mom, you and dad, you know, in the forest, you had to huddle with each other for warmth. You know, the forest bed was your floor, the forest floor was your bed, uh, you know seemed a little romantic to me. I said, did anything ever happen? And my mother said in her Yiddish, uh, you know, Eastern European accent, darling, I don't want, I should embarrass you. <laughs> Didn't want to embarrass me. So, no. <laughs> so apparently something happened, I don't know. But anyway, um, after the war, uh, they went back to the farmhouse and lo and behold, my grandparents were still there. And then they all walked across the border to Germany. They were a displaced persons camp for about four or five years until they all emigrated to New York. And I grew up on the Lower East Side in a walk-up tenement the, you know, the, uh, in, the, in the Jewish Lower East Side. And like I describe often in certain pieces that I've written, I said, the Holocaust lived with us. The Holocaust, but it didn't have its own room where you could lock it up and just put it away. It lived in every room. It lived on, on all the walls. It lived in every photograph, every that that was preserved from the war. It lived on every religious article that my father or my grandfather managed to save. I remember my father kept. This, the Jewish star that Jews were forced to sew on their clothing was said Yud. Mm. Uh, you know, it was on that too. I used to keep that at my bedside mm. as a four-year-old. Can you imagine? Oh my God. And, 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 uh, and why did, what, what, what was, was there a specific purpose to keeping that? For keeping it? 
Yeah. Yes. Uh, to never forget what happened. Mm -hmm. Yes. To never forget. And um, and it wasn't so much never forget the horror or never forget the fact that there was so much. It was to never forget the people who didn't have a chance to live. The, the, all the relatives, my mother's brothers, uh, my my father's entire family. Never forget those who never lived. But a lot of people, uh, you know, you know, never forget is is a uh, in 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 uh, in Hebrew the, the the word for the Holocaust is called Shoah, and uh, you know, uh, it's a it's a very uh, common thing for people to um, uh, to be determined never to forget uh, the Shoah. It's a little bit like slavery, you know. You've got to you've got to we can't we can't forget it that it happened it's too, it's too important and too monumental and too and you know uh, it changed the world in in such a way that you can never lose sight of that fact uh, maybe you can forgive but you can't forget right uh and uh i kept it out of i kept it out of superstition i believe but so I uh, I grew up with my, my parents telling me all these stories of 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 how they survived, but also of all the people who died, and all the people whose life who never had a chance to have lives, right? And so for me as a four year old, death was very real, and I was very aware of death. I could not deny death. So in this process of creating who you are, where a lot of people create a life, a human life that has both awe and dread in it, I could, I could not deny the dread. I had to, I had to create a life in which dread was a part of it. And I had to develop an attitude towards death. I had to find a way to relate to death. And actually what I had to find was a way to relate to the suffering caused by being in that space between life and death, which is where my parents were for so many years, right? In those, in the woods. And, uh, and so death was very real to me. And uh, every morning when my mother would make breakfast for me and then eventually my younger brother, she would ask us the same question. She would ask, she would ask me actually, because I was the first born. She said, why am I here? Why am I here? The full question was, why am I here and everyone else is dead? Why did I survive and no one else did? Hardly anyone else did. And that was the question. It turned out that I was the answer. Uh, now, I don't remember if my mother actually ever spoke those words or I just got that message, you know, non-verbally, <laughs> but uh, the expectation was, the burden placed on me was that it was, my parents survived to get to the new world, you know, uh, New York, and, and live long enough so that I could be born. And that it was up to me to create a life and to become someone who had such a significant impact on the world particularly in the arena of suffering, particularly in that space 
between that nexus between life and death that my achievements my impact on suffering being so significant was going to obviously redeem their them in terms of their survival that they would be able to say you see of course we had to survive because if we didn't survive there wouldn't be a Bill Breitbart in the world. They, might, they didn't call me Bill. They called me by my Yiddish name, <laughs> Belville. But, you know, so I was the, I was, my, my burden was to become this person, right? Now, for, and I grew up in a community with a lot of kids. I went to all boys schools. A lot of my classmates grew up in very similar homes with very similar stories. And for many of us, this burden, like it was for me, turned into an inspiration. I created my life in, in response to that, partially and uniquely. You know, my parents actually wanted me to be a cardiologist. They thought that was strong. But, uh, but they didn't know that they had created someone who was meant to ease suffering. They didn't know what I was supposed to do. They just knew I was supposed to do something. Uh, I was supposed to justify their survival. Um, <laughs> They didn't quite have it all figured out. And so for me, it was an inspiration. And a lot, for a lot of my, my, my classmates, it was an inspiration. So the, you have no idea how many psychiatrists came out of my, my, my class. My class. <laughs> psychiatrists, neuropsychiatrists, philosophers. I mean, it's, it's incredible. The concentration from my neighborhood and the, and the, the class that I was in, in the Orthodox Jewish school. Uh, but then for some of the, for some, so, some of my classmates, it was a crushing burden. The burden was crushing. And though I sometimes joke that those are the guys in my class who became dentists. <laughs> you, you couldn't, you weren't allowed to fall below that level. Right. You just inflict pain for a living. But, um, <laughs> and, and so, so it's no coincidence that I ended up at Memorial Sloan Kettering working with developing and working in the area of psychiatric palliative care and then starting to and having my research evolve from I trained both in medicine and psychiatry because I was struggling with how do I how do I heal people how do I heal suffering do I do it do I heal the body or do I heal the soul <laughs> you know uh, the psyche and it turned out I I was destined to be at that nexus between the psyche and the and the and the soma, you know, psychosomatic. Psyche is actually mind, mind and spirit in Greek. As as a, not, it's not really a dichotomy of mind and body. It's the mind, body, spirit. So um, I was I was really the spirit doctor. And psych, psychiatrists are doctors of the soul, psyche. <laughs> That's what we are. Uh, but I put myself in the environment of pe where people were dealing with facing death. They were, they were unavoidably having to face their mortality because of the cancer. Uh, but, you know, in the beginning, I wasn't quite, I wasn't quite certain about where, where I had to be. And so I, I, I moved back and forth between medicine and psychiatry. And then I found myself doing fellowship in, uh, in, at Sloan Kettering. And I started doing research on medical aspects of psychiatric, you know, psychiatric aspects of medical problems, depression, delirium, uh, drug trials, and fatigue, pain. And then, and then, I, then I landed in the world of existential despair, 
desire for haste and death, things like that. And, what, and then reverted back to medical stuff, like how, what happens if you treat depression and desire for haste, oh, it gets better. But then I stumbled on meaning, the loss of meaning and hope. And, and I really got to do work in the, in the arena of, of meaning and, and existence and what it, you know, and, and, and the who you are. How do you sustain a life of meaning and still experience awe knowing that this is just temporary? How do you thrive even in that space of temporary existence? And that's the story. It's a beautiful story. And thank you for telling this story. It gets better every time. I think that there are extra details that I did not know about your grandparents and, and, and how your dad came to the picture. So I really do appreciate it. And, and, and you know, like thinking about specifically the meaning in the middle of suffering, that's something that it's, it's sometimes hard to grasp, right? Like we have some degree of suffering that, okay, maybe we have somebody, sometimes family members will die. Sometimes we will uh, embrace, break up some physical illness. To some extent, we, we do experience suffering, but at some point as we get older and we get more sick, and in the case of our patients, when, we when, when cancer comes into the picture and sometimes terminal cancer and really, really difficult to treat cancer, it can be hard for a cancer patient to say, how can I thrive in the middle of all this suffering? And, and surprisingly, I mean, yeah, it's possible. And, and I've had patients that, that have done so beautifully. And, 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 I, and I love to, to, to create that comparison with Viktor Frankl, who was able to truly find meaning in the middle of being trapped in that concentration camp. It's yeah. not exactly the same as cancer, but like the, the one thing that disease or Nazis can fully take away from you is your attitude towards your life. Right. The way you think about things, yes. But, you know, that, uh, and this whole idea of attitudinal sources of meaning, in other words, you can choose your attitude towards suffering. And stuff. That was the hardest thing for me to understand. And, uh, and um, I finally uh, uh, grew to understand it in a slightly different way. I mean, it's, it's the same thing, but um, who you are comes back to who you are and authenticity. Who you are is, is you, what makes up who you are is your attitude, right? Your perspective on things, your attitude, the way you think about things, right? Uh, uh, be, being who you are authentically, right? Now, um, how, can it, how can you experience beauty and joy in something that's in suffering, right? How can you, how can you experience meaning in the face of suffering? Um, my father, I, I sat with my father as he was dying for the last 18 hours of his life at next, holding his hand sitting beside him, sometimes lying beside him in his bed, my mother on the other side. 
It was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. The last thing I did just before he died is he, he was unshaven and my father was the manager of a restaurant and it, he was an impeccable man in a sense of he never, he had to always be clean shaven, wear a crisp suit so that he could be the face of this very famous restaurant on Lower East Side. And he had about two weeks of stubble and I knew he wouldn't want to die unshaven. So I started to shave him I, I put you know lather on his face and I shaved one half of his face and I got to the middle of the face half the job was done and my mother was in the kitchen cleaning dishes or something and he exhaled and died and I stood there for a second and I, I said do I call my mother in and tell her that dad died or do I finish the job and then call my mother in? And I've asked, I've asked hundreds, thousands of people what they would have done. Everyone basically says the same thing. They said, I would have finished the job. Is that what you would have said? That's exactly what I was thinking. So that's what I did. I finished the job and then I called my mother in. Um, I was holding my father's hand, who's unconscious, and every, I could feel his pulse, every, beat of his pulse right was an expression of love for me it was just uh, uh, it was so how could you say that my father dying was beautiful but it was right mm -hmm. and i think what it boils down to is the fact of who we are when we experience anything whether it be joyous or tragic uh when we do it uniquely authentically as a human being the way only a human being can do it we experience meaning so if you're dying and you die as only a human being dies that's meaningful if you're giving birth if you're a human woman giving birth to a human child and only the way a human being can give birth that is meaningful it's authentically human so if you if we are being our true authentic human selves and if even more so being able to still um still hold on to the essence of who we are authentically a loving person right if my death is about loving everyone and if my death is not about me but about teaching everyone else not to be afraid of death then it's meaningful it's beautiful right so that's how that's that's my idea of attitude right uh in the face of you know choosing attitudes or suffering um that's how you can there can be beauty there can be joy there can be meaning in uh in suffering i wouldn't go out of my way to uh to find suffering, to experience, <laughs> uh, you know, avoidable suffering should be avoided. Uh, but inevitably in life, uh, Viktor Frankl called it the tragic triad of life. In life, you will, uh, you will inevitably encounter um, death, suffering, and guilt. And what he meant was existential guilt. He called it the tragic triad of life. Uh, 
And if you get old enough, you realize that it's true. <laughs> uh, the existential guilt, the and that also falls into the whole idea of who you are, right? Right. The idea of existential guilt is that you did not fully become who you could have been, right? You didn't fully become who you could have been. Yeah, you will never be. No, but hardly ever, anybody achieves yeah. that, right? So we're yeah. all die with a little bit of existential guilt. And that's why it's important to be able to forgive, forgive yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where love comes in. It's a lot easier to forgive anybody you love. And that's why it's important to cultivate love for yourself because ultimately in your lifetime, you're going to have to forgive yourself for what your regrets, what you didn't achieve, what you didn't accomplish, the jobs you didn't finish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that, I think we should close the episode with that. Um, yes. It's a beautiful episode. It basically, I'm going to name it. Who are you? Who are you? Who okay. are you? Yeah. And well, thank you so thank much you for what, yeah, I think that we have, I have learned just listening to you for this last hour. So I really do appreciate it. I appreciate it too. I hope you get a lot of uh, fan mail from this. <laughs> well, if I get hate mail, I'll let you know too. Okay. Tell me about the hate mail too. <laughs> I have ways of dealing with haters. All right. If, okay. if nobody hates you, then you didn't really stand for anything.